0: Welcome to Frontline Church, South OKC's podcast, where each week we upload a new sermon from our sermon series. If you have any questions or concerns or need prayer for anything, feel free to reach out at hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you. The scripture for today's sermon comes from Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 17. The word of God speaks to us. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed, around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gion. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat; for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is God's word to us.
1: Thanks be to God. Awesome. Hey, good morning, y'all. Hey, Boomer Sooner, right? Yeah. I I I don't know if I agree with the premise that God loves some teams, and I don't. I, mean, I think that's probably right. But hey, good morning. It's good to be with you. My heart rate finally came down early this morning from yesterday. I burned like six pounds of. Uh, Uh, just pure like heart rate level yesterday. So good to be with you this morning. I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad that you have energy and joy. Hey, uh, a couple of things before we get to Genesis chapter two. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and head there. A couple of things real quick. The first is if you're visiting with us today and you're not sure what you think about Jesus or Christianity, man, I'm really honored that you would come and spend time with us. We, we believe the songs that we're saying, we believe the confession that we just said together and the assurance that we received, and we believe that there's good news in Jesus Christ. And if you have questions about that, if you are not sure what you think about that or where you are with the church, man, please don't feel like you have to uh, hide or avoid those things. Like We actually would love to get coffee with you in the coming days and just talk about that and answer questions, and we don't claim to know everything, but we really do trust what the Bible says, and we'd love to talk about that with you. So thanks for being with us today. The second thing is uh, I want to say thanks for sending my wife and I to Iowa. Uh, Last weekend we were out, we were in Iowa, and we went to visit our friends, uh, Tim Kimberly and his kids, and Sacred Mission Church. And you've probably heard us talk about Sacred Mission if you've been around for a while, but that church was planted out of Frontline about four years ago, And it's in a small town, Collins, Maxwell, Iowa. Tim lives in a town of about 500 people. And get this, there were almost 200 people that gathered with us on Sunday morning. Uh, My wife got to lead worship. I got to teach. And I got to do some stuff with their leaders that weekend. And it was a really significant time for us to be there for for a couple of reasons. But one was last year, last week, uh, Tim's wife tragically died. And so we were able to be with him on the weekend going into uh, the death of his wife. And he's got three little kids that are just precious and awesome, uh, Hannah and Silas and Grace. And uh, man, we got to like cry with them and pray with them and laugh with them and be with them. So thank you for sending us. Um, One of the best things that I got to do is ride around with Tim. And he kept pointing to all these different houses and he was like, I led that guy to Jesus two weeks ago. And I led that family to Jesus uh, three months ago. And, and, and then this family started coming to our church, and he's getting baptized next week. And I mean, it was just dozens of people that Tim and the people at Sacred Mission are seeing come to know Jesus Christ, or repenting of sin, placing faith in him. It's unbelievable what's happening there. And, uh, and I'm, I'm happy to report that Tim is doing really well. He, he's he's leaning into grief. He's he's uh, leaning into sorrow, but he is also leaning in with hope and joy. and And he told me, he said, "Man, I'm I'm I, literally everything in my life is is where I would hope it could be. It's just Patty's not here." That's the thing. Patty's not here. So he's carrying that really well. So here's what I'd love to do before we jump in and, and we walk through some of uh, Genesis chapter two. What I'd love is just for us to take a minute and pray for them and pray for his family and pray for sacred mission. Does that sound good? So Father, we, we, uh, we love Tim, Kimberly. We, we hold up Tim and Hannah and Silas and Grace and thank you for this church. Thank you for sacred mission. Thank you for the ways that you're ministering and you're serving and your power is on display there. And God, we pray that you would take that church deeper in discipleship. We pray that you would take that church deeper into gospel resilience. We pray that you would take that church deeper into truth. God, we pray that people that are far from you, people in that farming community and all those small towns around it would come to know you as Lord. Would, would find hope in you, would find life in you. And I pray that you would, in every way, provide what that church needs. Provide resources, provide, provide leaders. God, we pray that you would give them vision for the future and wisdom. And I even pray right now, as they have marked the one-year anniversary of Patty's death, God, we pray that you would comfort that family, that you would, you would help them lament and help them grieve. And we thank you, God, that we grieve as people with hope because we believe in the resurrection. Thank you that you're gonna, you're gonna return to this earth and raise Patty back up. And we, we, we long for that day. We know they long for that day. So we pray that that church would be blessed and poured into. And then today, God, as we open up Genesis 2, as we look at work and vocation and the calling that you've placed on us as humans, God, we pray that you would uh, give us grace to conform to your word and release us back out into the world today as people that carry your heart. Come and move, come and work today, we pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. In what I think is her most punk rock song of all time, Dolly Parton says these words, working nine to five, yeah, they got you where they want you. There's a better life and you dream about it, don't you? It's a rich man's game, no matter what they call it, and you spend your life putting money in his wallet. And we've talked about a lot of stuff in our first four weeks of Genesis. We, we've already talked about how God is the uncreated creator of all things, that he's unlike all of the other uh, gods that ancient Uh, Near Eastern people believed in, that all these creation myths are are totally unlike this story that we have in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. It's completely different. It's it's completely different than any major world religion outside of Christianity. We've talked about that. Last week, Pastor Sean Evans talked about how we were created in the image of God and what that means to represent God in the the world and to rule the way that God would have us rule. We've talked about a lot of stuff, but today we're going to talk about work. We're going to talk about work. And when I say work, I'm thinking of all types of work. So I'm thinking of doctors and those in the medical field and school teachers and oil and gas industry and construction workers and financial advisors and data analysts. and And, and I'm talking about stay-at-home moms and student teachers and anything that you can think of, that's what we're talking about. And I wonder, I wonder, when I say that we're talking about work, I wonder what that does to you wonder if you have like a visceral response. If your boss is in the room, don't do this. But how many of you on Monday at like, you know, 5 or 6 p.m. start to get that nod in your stomach of like, oh, I've got to go back again tomorrow. Raise, raise your hand, show us. How many of you feel that? Dude, everybody else is lying here, okay? You, you know you've had that moment where you're like, oh, the weekend is up and I've got to go back. I've got to go do the thing. And, and it was over so fast. We feel this dread. And I think honestly, you and I, have a complicated relationship with work. Even if you love your job, we've got a complicated relationship with work. There are two common approaches, and this is probably overly simplistic, overly reductionistic, but I think that there's two primary approaches that people have to work. The first is we view ourselves and other people as productivity machines, productivity machines. What happens when you meet someone for the first time? You usually ask two questions. The first is, what's your name? And the second question is what? What do you do? And that's not a bad question. Like, we genuinely want to know. It helps us understand who people are and kind of give us a sense of their place in the world. But, but here's, here's what's also true, and we don't like to believe it. Maybe we don't even intentionally do this. But in Western society, what we tend to do is evaluate people's worth and significance and importance directly based on what they do. So if you meet someone and they're like, I'm a brain surgeon, it's like, ooh, okay, okay. Very important person. We know what we're dealing with. You meet someone and they're like, I'm a stay-at-home mom. You're like, wah, wah, right? And it's kind of like that in our society has less value if you're a stay-at-home mom than if you are a brain surgeon. One is seen as, wow, you're really significant. You're a big deal. You matter. And the other is seen as less than in our society. We, we reduce people down to productivity machines. And, and based on if you produce a lot and produce well and produce the right types of things, you matter. Remember COVID? You're an essential worker, right? I remember seeing bumper stickers. It's like, that's the weirdest thing to brag about. I'm an essential worker. It's like, yeah, you're human. You, you all, Everybody's essential. <laughs> we need all humans. We need people, right? And so what happens when we reduce people down to productivity machines is what happens when a machine stops producing or stops functioning? What do you do with it? You, just, you replace it or throw it away because it doesn't have value if it doesn't produce anything, and, and if you reduce humans down to productivity machines, it actually means that when there comes a day where they stop producing, they stop holding any value whatsoever. That's one approach. The other approach, I think, is much more common and much more at home with how we tend to live, and that's when you and I think of ourselves as primarily pleasure machines. What I mean is, we do what we do, and we do our job, and we earn the money that we earn, so that we can have the life that we want. So it's a necessary means to another end. It's not like we necessarily love it. Maybe you do. Maybe you do love your job. Some of us love our job. Some of us are indifferent. Some of us hate our job. But either way, your job becomes the means, a mechanism by which you get the life that you want. So it's like, well, I do this so that I can get the money and buy the things that I think are going to make me happier get the vacations that are going to fill me up or, or, or have the retirement life that I'm longing for. And essentially what you and I do is we turn work into this pathway where one day, one day if we're successful enough and we work hard enough, we can live on a perpetual vacation. Wendell Berry, he says it like this. There's nothing more absurd to give an example that's only apparently trivial. Think about this than the millions who wish to live in luxury and idleness, and yet be slender and good-looking. We have millions, too, whose livelihoods, amusements, and comforts are all destructive, who nevertheless wish to live in a healthy environment. It's like, man, all I want to do is work for the weekend, and I'm going to party, and I'm going to do whatever else, and I'm going to, you know, feast, and I'm going to live it up, and then I'm going to go on vacation, then I'm going to retire, and that's going to be my life, and but I also wanna have a six pack and be handsome, right? It's like you can't, those two things don't go together. We've got a weird relationship with our work. Some of us overwork, some of us underwork. Some of us look to work to name us and define us. Some of us can't stand our work and it carries a significant place in our soul of frustration and angst. Some of us, if we're honest, honestly, I think this is probably most of us, what, what happens is that you and I end up just going through the motions and kind of punching the clock so that we can grind it out every day without really ever knowing what a satisfying relationship to our job would even look like. And I think this is where you and I find us. And and here's what's interesting. There's one way to ask this question to say, what is work for? But there's actually a deeper, more essential question. And that deeper, more essential question is, what are people for? we got to get at the people question before we can get at the work question. If you understand what people are for, it actually sheds a lot of insight and light on what work is for. And so with that in mind, this is one of the most significant things that we see in our origin story, in Genesis chapter 1 and in Genesis chapter 2. So with that in mind, let me give you some context to Genesis chapter 2, and then we're going to work our way through. Now, let me just preface and say this. There's a lot happening here. There's a lot about the Garden of Eden, and we're given even these rivers about locations, and two of these rivers are known, the Tigris and the Euphrates. The other two are not quite as known, or at least there's one that nobody really knows where that's at, so it raises questions. Where's the Garden of Eden located? We 're not going to get to that today uh, there 's all kinds of things here about the the two trees in the garden, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil we 'll touch on that, but we 're not really going to get to that today there 's all kinds of stuff here about gender and sexuality we 're going to get to that next week as we talk about Adam in the garden and Eve in the garden and there 's so much happening here, but what I want to do is look at this from the angle of work. look at this from the angle of humans and what it means to have a vocation now remember. Remember that Genesis was written for us, right? But it was not written to us. It was actually written to ancient Israel, and it was written to Israel after they were redeemed out of slavery for 400 years, in, ex, in the Exodus narrative. So this story would have been read by ancient Israel after they spent 400 years as slaves under a harsh taskmaster. And that's really important to remember as we look through what we're gonna see. And then in addition to that, chapter two is interesting because chapters one, one through two, three is essentially like the overture or the intro to the whole book of Genesis. Chapter two is essentially like chapter one of the story. It's really interesting. When you get to chapter two, what's happening is the camera angle has been really wide and broad. It's talked about this uncreated creator, and it's actually used this phrase, Elohim in Hebrew, which just simply is a generic term for God. It's like God did this, and God did that, and God, but it doesn't really tell you anything about this God, and, and, and other people at the time believed in gods, so you're not really given any details, just God creates, so who is this God? Well, you don't find out until chapter 2, and in verse 4 of chapter 2, there's a shift here. Now, all of a sudden, it's not just God, it's the Lord God, or Yahweh Elohim. And it's used all throughout chapters 2 and 3, Yahweh Elohim, which is is a reference to this God of Israel who is naming himself and who wants to be close to his people. And now it zooms out of just God creating in general. Now we're talking about this zooming in reality of of the Lord God and and, and him making not just all things but a garden and and then him taking Adam and Eve, two, two people, that are married, this couple, he's, he's taking this couple, and, and then he's giving them a task and a role. That's the background. That's the context here. So with all of that in mind, as the camera angle is zooming in, and in a sense, retelling the story of chapter one, but from a zoomed in perspective, look at verse five. It says, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. Again, this is a retelling of chapter one. Look at this. And there was no man to what? To work the ground. Verse six, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. We'll talk about that next week. Verse eight, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. I love that. Do you think of God as a gardener, a planter? He's putting his hands down in the dirt. He's getting, he's getting soil underneath his fingernails, as it were. And he's planting a garden in Eden, in the east. And, and look at this. There he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant in sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, fast forward and go to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden. Why? To work it and to keep it. There's so much here, but just three things that I want you to see. Here's the first one. You and I were created for work. You and I were actually created for work. Now, let's unpack this a little bit. Let's look at this from a few different angles and a few things for you to consider. First, notice that work is not a result of the fall. I I grew up in church. I realized not all of us did, so maybe this is your perspective. Maybe this wasn't your perspective, but for me growing up, I just thought that whatever life was like in the Garden of Eden must have looked a lot like a sandals resort, right? It's like all-inclusive, no clothing allowed, basically like you're just eating food and sipping mimosas and hanging out in hammocks. It's like, hey, what do we have to do to get back to that, right? Before sin entered the world, things were great. It was amazing. It was perpetual vacation forever. It's sort of like God made this garden uh, called Eden and then he threw it on top of a yacht and he's like, have fun. Buffet's open 24 seven and you know, do whatever you wanna do. That's how I thought that life pre-fall, life pre-sin was. But notice here, that before sin ever entered the world, what is there? Man getting put in a garden to work it and to keep it. Friends, work preceded humanity's fall into sin. This is a big deal. We were actually, in a real sense, created for work. And guess what? When Jesus returns and makes all things new, we will not be floating on clouds and strumming harps and wearing diapers like they taught us in The Simpsons. Like, that's not what we're going to be doing. We're actually going to be living on a redeemed earth. And guess what we're going to be doing? Working for the glory of God cultivating and creating and building and and doing art and making music and all these amazing things that you and I get to spend our lives doing. We were created for work and work preceded the fall and work is going to long outlive sin. This is a big deal. In addition to that, work is one of the primary ways that you and I image God and partner with God in the world. And this is big. I love this. Do you remember what God is doing in Genesis chapter 1? In these six days that we read about, God is doing two things. He's forming things and he's filling things. Do you remember that from two weeks ago? He's forming and and he's filling. He's forming the earth, he's ordering it, he's structuring it, he's he's overseeing it, and then he's filling it with life and plants and beauty and animals and people. He's filling. And and what's fascinating about the very first job description that humanity has ever given, let me show you this again in Genesis 126. Listen to the, the job description of humanity. Says, then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Hey, no pressure, just run the world, okay? The whole world, that's your job, right? God's saying, here, I've made this. Now you run it. You oversee it, right? You you be the king, you be the queen, and you oversee this whole thing underneath my authority. He goes on and and he says, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Did you notice what God is saying there to humans? Hey, I've done this hard work. I've been forming and I've been filling. And now guess what? It's your turn. I want you to now form this garden. I want you to now fill this garden. And and it's amazing how God basically created humans to to carry out the exact same thing that he was doing in Genesis chapter one. In chapter two, we're taking on that same task. And that same role. And this is a big deal. And there's something hidden here that we often don't notice. But there's all these hints that what we're dealing with here is not just some generic God. But when you get to chapter 2, we're dealing with God who wants to relate to you and I as father. And he wants us to relate to him as his sons and as his daughters. There's over and over in Genesis chapter 2 this concept that's getting built out that Adam is like a son to God. And that Eve is like a daughter to God, as it were. And we're even gonna see next week as God is bringing the woman to the man as a father would bring a a bride to her husband and, and is officiating the very first wedding. I mean, God is taking on the role of father and he's saying, hey, I've planted a garden and I've been hard at work in chapter one forming things and filling things. Now it's your turn. As the father, I want you, Adam, I want you, Eve, to to form and to fill this garden. In fact, in Luke chapter 3, at the very end, it actually explicitly refers to Adam as, guess what, as the son of God. Adam is seen here as the son of God at the very end of Luke chapter 3. This is amazing. And here's what that means that what God is doing here in Genesis chapter 2 is essentially like a bring your kids to work day for God. That's what's happening. Uh, yesterday, Friday, or sorry, uh, two days ago, Friday, um, my son is now at the age, he turned six a few weeks ago, where lately he's been asking me, dad, dad, when can I help you mow? When when can I help you mow? And I'm like, praise God, I've been waiting for this. You know, like, he doesn't know, like, that's half the reason you're here, young man, is to do this job for me. And yes, six is old enough, I think. And so we got out there and and, and I, you know, I'm showing him the mower, I'm like walking him through, I'm like, this is where you fill it up with gas and here's where the oil goes and here's this thingy, I don't even know what that does and I'm just pretending like I do so he thinks I know what I'm doing and, you know, I'm like walking him through all the, if you ever need to change the oil, you'll probably pay somebody because I don't know how to do that, you know, and like walking him through the stuff, right, and then, <laughs> thank you, and then, uh, and, and then and then we mow the lawn together. Now my, my mower is terrible, it's awful, it's old, it's ancient, you know, it has one of the self propel things but it doesn't work and so so I'm like, all right, so we fire up the mower, and I'm like, all right, now, now let's do this, and I'm teaching him how. It's like, you stand here, and I'll, I'll stand behind you, and, and I'm having to push it awkward because I'm helping him push it, and, and then he's like, no, let me do it, and, but he can't push it because it's so heavy, and so I'm like awkwardly with one hand trying to let him do it, but also guiding it so my lawn doesn't look like this, and, and it, it, listen, it, it took four times as long, four times as long as it should have. It was way harder. My back was sore afterwards because I was standing in a weird way, and I had so much fun with my son doing that job. And, and at the very end of it, I said, all right, Bear, here's the most important thing. You've got to take a deep breath and just survey what you've done and admire it, right? So there we were. We just, like, took a deep breath. We smelled the grass. And I, I look over at him. He's, you know, and he's looking out. He's like, yeah, we did. We did pretty good, didn't we, you know? And I'm watching this, and it's like, man, this is what it's all about. It's more complicated. It takes longer. But... I've got so much joy working with my son. That's what God's doing in Genesis chapter two. God's saying, hey, I I wanna do this with you. Like, I've made a beautiful earth and and I've been forming it and I've been filling it. Now, hey, I planted a garden. Hey, hey, sons and daughters, come along with me. Work with your dad. Watch the way I do it. Watch my generosity. Watch my wisdom. Watch my intentionality. Watch the way that I structured this thing to go. Watch the way that I've been cultivating and filling. Now you do that. Do it the way that I would do it. Image me and go to work. This is what theologians call the cultural mandate. One author, Richard Pratt, says it this way. He says, God ordained humanity To be the primary instruments by which his kingship will be realized on the earth. The great king has summoned each of us into the throne room. Take this portion of my kingdom, he says. I'm making you my steward over this part of uh, my steward over your office, your workbench, your kitchen, stove. Put your heart into mastering this part of my world. Get it in order. Unearth its treasures. Do all you can with it. Then everyone will see what a glorious king I am. That's why we get up every morning and go to work. We don't labor simply to survive. Insects do that. Our work is an honor, a privileged commission from our great king. God has given each of us a portion of his kingdom to explore and to develop to its fullness. I mean, this is amazing, friends. We are created for work. And the last thing under this main point that I want you to consider here is that actually your work, no matter what you do, Unless your work is directly tied to you sinning against God, no matter what you do, your work is sacred, not secular. Now, let me let me remind you, Genesis 1 and 2, we said this two weeks ago, are God creating a cosmic temple, a temple sanctuary. That This earth is not just this earth, that God made the world, and specifically the Garden of Eden to be a dwelling place for God and humanity that was going to function like a cosmic temple. And that's why when you read through the Old Testament and you read about the temple or the sanctuary, one of the things that you immediately notice is that if you walk into this tabernacle, what's it look like? It looks like the Garden of Eden. The temple or the the tabernacle look just like the Garden of Eden. There's fruit trees everywhere and there's leaves and there's plants and there's, it's like, designed to look like the Garden of Eden. In fact, you know the menorah, the the tree that has the candles on it, that was gonna be in the the temple or in the, the tabernacle? That was representative of the tree of life. I mean, everything about the story is reminding us that the Garden of Eden and the whole world is this cosmic temple where God wants to dwell with us. And here's the point, friends. There's something that God says to the priest in the Old Testament when he puts the priest in the tabernacle. And you know the first thing that he says for them to do? I want you to work it, and I want you to keep it. Sound familiar? He's telling them to do exactly what he told Adam to do in Genesis chapter 2. In other words, Adam was seen as a priest in this temple, this garden sanctuary where he was supposed to do all that he did, naming the animals and plant stuff and, and build stuff and cultivate stuff. He was to do all that he was to do out of devotion and honor and worship of God. Friends, your job is not a secular job. You don't go to work and then show up to church to have the one hour of sacred time. Actually, though this is really special, though this is really significant and important, what you do in the other 167 hours a week is done, if done to the glory of God, actually done in worship and devotion to Jesus. It's not secular, it's sacred, it matters. All of life is sacred for the follower of Jesus. That's why Nancy Piercy says this. She says, The ideal human existence is not eternal leisure or endless vacation or even a monastic retreat into prayer and meditation, but creative effort expended for the glory of God and the benefit of others. Our calling is not just to go to heaven, but also to cultivate the earth, not just to save souls, but also to serve God through our work. For God himself is engaged not only in the work of salvation, but also in the work of preserving and developing his creation. When we obey the cultural mandate, we participate in the work of God himself. So friends, point one's over. That's it, your work matters. You are created in a real way. You are created for work. And it's infused with significance. Now, if that's true, if that's really true, can I just ask the question bluntly? Why does work suck so bad? Why does it suck? Even if you love your job, why is it awful? Why is it painful? Why is it boring at times? Why is it frustrating at times? Why does work, even if you love your job, not always go according to plan? Well, that leads me to the second thing I want you to see, which is the brokenness of work. The brokenness of work. Look at verse 16. It says, And the Lord God, he commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. How many nos did God give Adam and Eve? Just just one. He actually created a world of yeses with only one no and you know that the way you know the way the story goes in Genesis chapter 3 it's tragic and it's awful but Adam and Eve actually reject and rebel against God and friends the point of the story here is not that they just ate fruit from a tree that God didn't want them to eat from it was it was a matter of trust and obedience and God and what they're doing by eating of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil is saying we don't want you to define good and evil for us anymore we wanna have ultimate say over what we think is right and over what we think is wrong. And we're gonna throw God's authority off and we're gonna reach out and pursue a life without God. Or to, to follow through with this like work reality or work analogy, it's sort of like God is taking his sons and daughters to bring your kid to work day and, and we kind of secretly orchestrate his, him getting fired, kicked out of the company, and then we take over and we're like, yeah, we don't want him around anyway. And then because we're terrible and don't know what we're doing, the company goes bankrupt and falls into complete dysfunction. I mean, that's what's happened in our story. And as a result, friends, sin has disordered and inverted everything. We're going to talk about this more specifically in a couple of weeks when we get to Genesis chapter three, but sin distorts and inverts literally everything. Instead of you and I worshiping God and then cultivating creation, we end up worshiping creation and pushing God off. Instead of you and I cultivating creation and enjoying it as a gift, it slowly over time becomes our end or the point of everything or the purpose of our lives. We look to that to define us rather than creator God. And when this happens, when our work gets disoriented and inverted and and we, we worship the things that we shouldn't worship and the one that we should worship we rebel against and don't worship, guess what happens to our work? it gets inverted and distorted and twisted as well. And now you and I live in the effects of a world that's been cursed and specifically our work being cursed. Now work itself wages war against us and we wage war against it. And we read in Genesis chapter three that now it, it's actually producing thorns and thistles instead of it being fruitful and doing the thing that it should do. And this leads to, to two big reactions. Again, this is probably an overstatement and there's probably better ways to say this, but two big uh, responses to the brokenness of work. The first is that some of us, we overwork. We respond to the curse by overworking. No, I'm going to master my own fate. I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to I'm going to take control. I'm going to I'm going to beat this job into submission. And what happens over time is we look to it for identity and significance and meaning and purpose and we overwork. In fact, 86% of Americans are now working 45 plus hours a week. So the 40-hour work week is a total thing of the past. Uh, the Japanese have a word called Kiroshi, which literally means death by overwork. And what's happening in Japan over the last several years, it's been happening for like a decade, is that people are literally dropping dead on the job because they're overworking. Their heart explodes or they have a stroke or whatever, they're just dropping dead and they're, they're tracing it back to this idea of kuroshi, people overworking themselves literally to death. And yet, you know what's crazy is statistically, wow, that's not, I gotta be careful, that one. Uh, Americans are actually working more hours than anyone else in the world, including the, including the Japanese. They, they, we're actually about 137 more hours per year than people who are dropping dead working. Uh, 260 hours more per year than the British. And this one's not surprising, 499 hours per year more than the French. I mean, what are they they doing? Like, (laughs) do they even have jobs? I don't, if you're from France and you're here, God bless you, we love you, you have value and dignity. What are y'all doing, by the way, right? So we overwork, the point is like, we, 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 we throw ourselves into it in a way that's actually not right or mature or good, but is more disordered and inverted because we're looking to it to name us. Or we underwork. And I think this is maybe potentially more of our issue in at least a millennial culture on down, of which I'm sadly a part of, the millennial culture. I wish I wasn't, but I am. According to a recent release data from Gallup, only 13% of employees are, quote, engaged in their jobs. 13%. And that's defined as emotionally invested in their work and focused on helping their organization improve. How many of you are a boss in the room? You oversee employees. You have people that report to you. Does that check out? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Amen, heads nodding. 13%. Like, it's, it's actually like crisis level. In fact, the survey goes on to say that 63% are, quote, not engaged or simply unmotivated and unlikely to exert extra effort. And then get this, this is crazy to me. 24% are actively disengaged or truly unhappy and unproductive. Literally, just just checking in, checking out, trying to punch a clock, survive the day. They do not care. They are on social media all day long. They're not exerting energy. 23%. 24%. 24%. This is crazy, but why? Why is it? Why why is our relationship to work so messed up? It's because of the brokenness of sin. It's because we're overworking or underworking, trying trying to avoid the curse or trying to react to the curse or take control. And this is so crazy. This is not what God intended for his church. This is not what what God intended for humanity. And yet here we are, disengaged, careless, flippant, apathetic, lazy, seeing our job as a necessary evil or a means to an end of pleasure. Now, friends, here's my conviction. I think that we would have continued on in the same path had it not been for the intervention of Jesus. And that leads me to the third and final thing that I want to see with you, which is the redemption of work. The redemption of work. See, everything goes wrong at a tree in the garden, but everything is going to get put right at another tree. Listen to this in Galatians 3. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Friends, Jesus is called the second Adam in the New Testament, right? Adam in the garden, everything goes wrong at a tree because he tells God no. But Jesus in another garden, the garden of Gethsemane, tells his father, not my will, but your will be done and then goes to a tree, and on that tree, Jesus takes our curse upon himself. And here's what's amazing about Jesus. It's not just his death or resurrection that is good news for us, but it's also his life. Did you know that Jesus lived a perfect life on your behalf that's counted as if you lived that life when you have faith in Jesus? That the perfect life of obedience that he lived, that the mature way that he lived, the resisting of sin and temptation that he lived, it's as if, You and I did that through faith in Jesus Christ. And I want you to think about this, that Jesus lived perfectly in his life in every area, including his relationship to work. Jesus worked hard. Jesus worked with intentionality. I love this from Dorothy Sayers. She says, no crooked table legs or ill-fitting drawers ever, I dare say, came out of the carpenter's shop at Nazareth, nor if they did, could anyone believe that they were made by the same hand that made heaven and earth. You see, God the creator is brilliant, he's wise, he's forming, he's filling, he's intentional. And guess what? Jesus shows up on the scene as the perfect human, God in the flesh, who's showing us, hey, here's how you live, not just spiritually, but like, it's how you live in the day to day and the mundane. Jesus spent 30 years in obscurity working hard, not overworking or underworking, but bringing intentionality and bringing glory to God and cultivating and keeping and protecting and building. He was doing the thing that you and I were made to do, but He did it perfectly in our place. And he dies for our sins, the, the ways that we've overworked or underworked. He rises again so that you and I can be not just forgiven not just redeemed, which is amazing, but so that you and I can have our whole lives reordered by grace, so that it actually affects the way that we live, not just in our relationship to God, but in our relationship to work. Jesus is redeeming our work. And now, because of him, he infuses our work with unbelievable significance and meaning. In fact, the Apostle Paul says this in Colossians 3. He says, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. If you're a follower of Jesus in the room, this is your task. Whatever you do, you're to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Paul goes on to say this. Notice this. This is unbelievable. He says, "Whatever you do." So so what do you do? You construction worker? Do you hang drywall? Are you a first responder? Are you an ER doc? Are you a coach? Are you a teacher? Are you a stay-at-home mom? Are you a student? What do you do? Whatever you do, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Why? Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. And I love this line, you are serving the Lord Christ Christ. Friends, it's not just the songs that you sing on Sunday that matters, it's how you do your job. You're serving the Lord Christ. You're serving the Lord Christ. Tomorrow morning on your way to work, you are serving the Lord Christ. You are imaging him, you're representing him, you are being the hands and feet of Jesus Christ on this earth, you are serving the Lord Christ. What that means is there's the boss that you have, and then there's the boss that you really have. There's the job that you do, and then there's the job that you really do. You're really bringing the kingdom of God to bear in our world. You're really imaging God. You're really representing him, and Jesus Christ is your boss. You're like, I don't like my boss. Well, Jesus is your boss, and he's a pretty good boss, right? So work for him. Martin Luther says it this way. What would you do? Imagine this. What would you do if Christ himself, with all the angels were visibly to descend and command you in your home to sweep your house and wash the pans and kettles. How happy you would feel and would not know how to act for joy. Not for the work's sake. You're like, I hate my job. It doesn't matter. So what? That's why they pay you. Your job doesn't matter, right? Not for the work's sake, but that you knew thereby you were serving him who is greater than heaven and earth. What you do in your house is worth as much as if you did it up in heaven for our Lord God. I love this. I hope this is seared into your heart. We should accustom ourselves to think of our position and work as sacred and well-pleasing to God, not on account of the position and work, but on account of the word and faith from which the obedience and the work flow. Man, I I have so much respect for you like It's not, my job is not a sacred job. It is a sacred job, but it's not the only sacred job on the market. What you do matters. Where you go matters. You're doing stuff that a pastor could never do. You're interacting with people in a way that a pastor could never interact. What you do matters. Do it heartily unto the Lord. You're serving the Lord Christ. And I love that line that Paul says, you're gonna receive an inheritance for your reward. You actually have a reward coming for how well you do your job. Amen? So let me close just three things that I want you to see for where we go from here and what we take with us. The first is this, man, I wanna urge you as one of your pastors, work hard, work hard. I I think if you're over the age of 50, like you got this probably on lock, hopefully. Hopefully, like this is something that's in your bloodstream, work hard. But man, can I just speak to those of you like wanna like, land the most amazing job ever, get paid trillions of dollars to do something that you love to do, and until you find that job, you're just gonna you know, phone it in. Please stop doing that. If you're a follower of Jesus, be among the 13% who are actively engaged in their job. Make it better. Make your boss be like, we can't lose this person. They are unbelievable. They make our company better. They make this business better. I mean, we as followers of Jesus should be the hardest working people around because we're working for Jesus, not for them. Let that be true of you. Work hard. Secondly, don't expect work to be easy. Be honest about it. Bob Thune, my friend, he says this, don't expect life at work to be peachy. We all know the way too happy Christians who go to work thinking that since they love Jesus, everything is gonna work out. It's not. You might miss your quota. You might lose a client. You might get fired. You might have conflict with your boss or your coworkers. Listen to this. These things don't mean that Jesus doesn't love you or that God is punishing you. Rather, they are an inevitable result of living in a fallen world. Remember, thorns and thistles, work is cursed. Work is affected by the fall. Work doesn't always work the way it should. So have a massively God-sized view of holiness of work, creation, but be realistic about the fall too. Jesus hasn't come back yet. And then the last thing is practice the Sabbath. Sabbath. Practice the Sabbath. Remember, Genesis 1, God is the one that we're imaging, and what does he do? Work six days. Work, 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 and then what? Rest. And that is the rhythm that he has built into the very fabric of our humanity. You and I are created to work for six days and to rest for one. We've preached on the Sabbath in the past. You can find sermons about that, but you need to practice a 24-hour period that you set aside just to rest, because that's the way that God Set this thing up to work. All right, so friends, let me invite you to stand with me if you would. And I want you to think about this with me as we come to the table. Our job aside, and even work and vocation aside, the greatest work that was ever done was the work that Jesus did on the cross to forgive us, to redeem us, to restore us, to recreate this world. On the cross, Jesus cries out these words, it is finished. His body was broken for you. His blood was shed for you. And the words that are ringing out that I want you to carry with you as you leave today, it is finished. What that means is that if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, there is literally nothing for you to add to the work of your salvation. There's nothing that you could add to it. And there's nothing that you've done in the last seven days since we've all been together for you to take away from the work that Jesus Christ cried out, it is finished. That you are secure in Jesus. You are loved by Jesus. You have all the grace and all the the love and the affection of a heavenly father that's for you today. And you are actually called to do everything in life, including your job, flowing out of that word, it is finished. It is finished. So today, I just want to invite you, where you're beat up today, where you are maybe beat up due to like self-inflicted sin, where you're weary today because you've got a hard job. Man, I feel feel for some of you. Some of you have got a very, very challenging job. You see some really dark things, some hard things. And where you're just beat up today and empty, man, you have a Father that sees and loves you and wants to minister to you today. You can come broken, you can come empty, and you can feast with Him today. He wants to give you grace. He wants to help you. He wants to be with you. So today where you're like, man, I don't want to go in. I don't want to go into Monday. I, I, I don't want to go into this week. I'm, I'm weary on a soul level. Come to the one that cried out, it is finished. And he will give you rest today. And maybe we could pray for you in a little bit and encourage you with what you do. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we love you. It is an honor to have you. We don't ever want you to feel embarrassed or like you're not a part of what we're doing, but we do wanna ask you to not come and take this meal. This bread, this cup, we have wine and juice based on your conscience. This is a meal of faith. And if you don't have faith in Jesus, if you've not repented and, and put your faith in Jesus, then this meal's not gonna help you, okay? It's, it's, it's for those of us that are saying, no, we, we are trusting in Christ. So if that's not yet your story, don't take the, the meal when we all come. It's not weird for you to hang back okay? So followers of Jesus, here's what I want to invite you to do is come and get in groups today, receive this, and and receive that word from Christ. It is finished. Let that ring in your heart as you go back out. We'll send you out in just a minute. So you're invited to come and receive the bread and the cup.